Annie Besant by Annie Besant. Chapter 8, Part 2. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. On February 28th, I stood for the first time on the platform of the Hall of Science, Old Street, St. Luke's, London, and was received with that warmth of greeting which secularists are always so ready to extend to any who sacrifice ought to join their ranks. That hall is identified in my mind with many a bitter struggle, with both victory and defeat, but whether in victory or in defeat, I found there always welcome, and the love and the courage wherewith secularists stood by me have overpaid a thousandfold any poor services I was fortunate enough to render while in their ranks to the cause of liberty, and wholly prevent any bitterness arising in my mind for any unfriendliness shown me by some, who have perhaps overstepped kindness and justice in their sorrowful wrath at my renunciation of materialism and atheism. So far as health was concerned, the lecturing acted as a tonic. My chest had always been a little delicate, and when I consulted a doctor on the possibility of my standing platform work, he answered, It will either kill you or cure you. It entirely cured the lung weakness, and I grew strong and vigorous instead of being frail and delicate as of old. It would be wearisome to go step by step over eighteen years of platform work, so I will only select here and there incidents illustrative of the whole. And here let me say that the frequent attacks made on myself and others, that we were attracted to free-thought propaganda by the gains it offered, formed a somewhat grotesque contrast to the facts. On one occasion I spent eight days in Northumberland and Durham, gave twelve lectures, and made a deficit of eleven shillings on the whole. Of course such a thing could not happen in later years, when I had made my name by sheer hard work, but I fancy that every secularist lecturer could tell of similar experiences in the early days of winning his way. The fact is that from Mr. Bradlow downwards every one of us could have earned a competence with comparative ease in any other line of work, and could have earned it with public approval instead of amid popular reproach. Much of my early lecturing was done in Northumberland and Durham. The miners there are, as a rule, shrewd and hard-headed men, and very cordial is the greeting given by them to those they have reason to trust. At Saghill and Bedlington I have slept in their cottages and have been welcomed to their tables, and I have a vivid memory of one evening at Saghill after a lecture, when my host, himself a miner, invited about a dozen of his comrades to supper to meet me. The talk ran on politics, and I soon found that my companions knew more of English politics, had a far shrewder notion of political methods, and were, therefore, much better worth talking to, than most of the ordinary men met at dinner parties in society. They were of the uneducated class despised by gentlemen, and had not then the franchise, but politically they were far better educated than their social superiors, and were far better fitted to discharge the duties of citizenship. How well, too, do I remember a ten-mile drive in a butcher's cart to give a lecture in an out-of-the-way spot, unapproached by railway. Such was the jolting as we rattled over rough roads and stony places that I felt as though all my bones were broken, and as though I should collapse on the platform like a bag half filled with stones. How kind they were to me, those genial, cordial miners, how careful for my comfort, and how motherly were the women. Ah, if my opponents of my views who did not know me were often cruel and malignant, there was compensation in the love and honor in which good men and women all the country over held me and their devotion outweighed the hatred, and many a time and often soothed a weary and aching heart. Lecturing in June 1875 at Leicester, 
I came for the first time across a falsehood that brought sore trouble and cost me more pain than I care to tell. An irate Christian opponent, in the discussion that followed the lecture, declared that I was responsible for a book entitled The Elements of Social Science, which was, he averred, the Bible of Secularists. I had never heard of the book, but as he stated that it was in favor of the abolition of marriage, and that Mr. Bradlaugh agreed with it, I promptly contradicted him, for while I knew nothing about the book I knew a great deal about Mr. Bradlaugh, and I knew that on the marriage question he was conservative rather than revolutionary. He detested free love doctrines, and had thrown himself strongly on the side of the agitation led so heroically for many years by Mrs. Josephine Butler. On my return to London after the lecture I naturally made inquiry as to the volume and its contents, and I found that it had been written by a doctor of medicine some years before, and sent to the National Reformer for review, as to other journals, in ordinary course of business. It consisted of three parts, the first advocated from the standpoint of medical science what is roughly known as free love, the second was entirely medical, the third consisted of a clear and able exposition of the law of population as laid down by the Reverend Mr. Malthus, and, following the lines of John Stuart Mill, insisted that it was the duty of married persons to voluntarily limit their families within their means of subsistence. Mr. Bradlaugh, in reviewing the book, said that it was written with honest and pure intent and purpose, and recommended to working men the exposition of the law of population. His enemies took hold of this recommendation, and declared that he shared the author's views on the impermanence of the marriage tie. And despite his reiterated contradictions, they used extracts against marriage from the book as containing his views. Anything more meanly vile it would be difficult to conceive, but such were the weapons used against him all his life and used often by men whose own lives contrasted most unfavorably with his own. Unable to find anything in his own writings to serve their purpose, they used this book to damage him with those who knew nothing at first hand of his views. What his enemies feared were not his views on marriage, which, as I have said, was conservative, but his radicalism and his atheism. To discredit him as politician, they maligned him socially, and the idea that a man desires to abolish marriage and the home is a most convenient poignard, and the one most certain to wound. This was the origin of his worst difficulties, to be intensified ere long by his defense of Malthusianism. On me also fell the same lash, and I found myself held up to hatred as upholder of views that I abhorred. I may add that far warmer praise than that bestowed on this book by Mr. Bradlaugh was given by other writers who were never attacked in the same way. In The Reasoner, edited by Mr. George Jacob Holyoke, I find warmer praise of it than in the National Reformer. In the review the following passage appears. In some respects all books of this class are evils, but it would be weakness and criminal prudery, a prudery as criminal as vice itself, not to say that such a book as the one in question is not only a far lesser evil than the one that it combats, but in one sense a book which it is a mercy to issue and courage to publish. The examiner, reviewing the same book, declared it to be a very valuable, though rather heterogeneous, book. This is, we believe, the only book that has fully, honestly, and in a scientific spirit recognized all the elements in the problem. How are mankind to triumph over poverty, with its train of attendant evils, and fearlessly endeavored to find a practical solution? The British Journal of Homeopathy wrote, Though quite out of the province of our journal, we cannot refrain from stating that this work is unquestionably the most remarkable one in many respects we have ever met with. 
Though we differ toto coelo from the author in his views of religion and morality, and hold some of his remedies to tend rather to a dissolution than a reconstruction of society, we are bound to admit the benevolence and philanthropy of his motives. The scope of the work is nothing less than the whole field of political economy. Ernest Jones and others wrote yet more strongly, but of all of these, Charles Bradlaugh alone has been selected for reproach, and has had the peculiar views of the anonymous author fathered on himself. Some of the lecture work in those days was pretty rough. In Darwin, Lancashire, in June 1875, stone-throwing was regarded as a fair argument addressed to the atheist lecturer. At Swansea, in March 1876, the fear of violence was so great that a guarantee against damage to the hall was exacted by the proprietor, and no local friend had the courage to take the chair for me. In September 1876, at Hoyland, thanks to the exertions of Mr. Hebblethwaite, a primitive Methodist, and two Protestant missionaries, I found the hall packed with a crowd that yelled at me with great vigor, stood on forms, shook fists at me, and otherwise showed feelings more warm than friendly. Taking advantage of a lull in the noise, I began to speak, and the tumult sank into quietness, but as I was leaving the hall it broke out afresh, and I walked slowly through a crowd that yelled and swore and struck at me, but somehow those nearest always shrank back and let me pass. In the dark, outside the hall, they took to kicking, but only one kick reached me, and the attempts to overturn the cab were foiled by the driver who put his horse at a gallop. Later in the same month Mr. Bradlow and I visited Congleton together, having been invited there by Mr. and Mrs. Wollstenholme Elmy. Mr. Bradlow lectured on the first evening to an accompaniment of broken windows, and I, sitting with Mrs. Elmy facing the platform, received a rather heavy blow on the back of the head from a stone thrown by someone in the room. We had a mile and a half walk from the hall to the house, and were accompanied all the way by a stone-throwing crowd, who sang hymns at the top of their voices, with interludes of curses and foul words. On the following evening I lectured, and our stone-throwing admirers escorted us to the hall. In the middle of the lecture a man shouted, "'Put her out!' and a well-known wrestler of the neighborhood named Burberry, who had come to the hall with some friends to break up the meeting, stood up as at a signal in front of the platform and loudly interrupted. Mr. Bradlow, who was in the chair, told him to sit down, and as he persisted in interrupting, informed him that he must either be quiet or go out. "'Put me out!' shouted Mr. Burberry, striking an attitude. Mr. Bradlow left the platform and walked up to the noisy swashbuckler, who at once grappled with him and tried to throw him. But Mr. Burberry had not reckoned on the massive strength of his opponent, and when the throw was complete, Mr. Burberry was underneath. Amid much excitement, Mr. Burberry was propelled towards the door, being gently used on the way as a battering ram against his friends who rushed to the rescue, and at the door was handed over to the police. The chairman then resumed his normal duties, with a brief, go on, to me, and I promptly went on, finishing the lecture in peace. But outside the hall there was plenty of stone-throwing, and Mrs. Elmy received a cut on the temple from a flint. This stormy work gradually lessened, and my experience of it was a mere trifle compared to that which my predecessors had faced. Mr. Bradlow's early experiences involved much serious rioting, and Mrs. Harriet Law, a woman of much courage and of strong natural ability, had many a rough meeting in her lecturing days. In September, 1875, Mr. Bradlow again sailed for America, still to earn money there to pay his debts. Unhappily, he was struck down by typhoid fever, and all his hopes of freeing himself thus were destroyed. His life was well-nigh despaired of, 
but the admirable skill of physician and nurse pulled him through said the baltimore advertiser this long and severe illness has disappointed the hopes and retarded the object for which he came to this country but he is gentleness and patience itself in his sickness in this strange land and has endeared himself greatly to his physicians and attendants by his gratitude and appreciation of the slightest attention his fortitude in face of death was also much commented on lying there as he did far from home and from all he loved best never a quiver of fear touched him as he walked down into the valley of the shadow of death the rev mr frothington bore public and admiring testimony in his own church to mr bradlaugh's noble serenity at once fearless and unpretending and himself a theist gave willing witness to the atheist's calm strength he came back to us at the end of september worn to a shadow weak as a child and for many a long month he bore the traces of his wrestle with death one part of my autumn's work during his absence was the delivery and subsequent publication of six lectures on the french revolution that stormy time had for me an intense fascination i brooded over it dreamed over it and longed to tell the story from the people's point of view i consequently read a large amount of the current literature of the time as well as louis blanc's monumental work and the histories of michelet lamartine and others fortunately for me mr bradlaugh had a splendid collection of books on the subject and ere we left england he brought me two cabs full of volumes aristocratic ecclesiastical democratic and i studied all these diligently and i lived in them till the french revolution became to me as a drama in which i had myself taken part and the actors were to me as personal friends and foes in this again as in so much of my public work i have to thank mr bradlaugh for the influence which led me to read fully all sides of a question and to read most carefully those from which i differed most ere i considered myself competent to write or to speak thereon from eighteen seventy five onwards i held office as one of the vice-presidents of the national secular society a society founded on a broad basis of liberty with the inspiring motto we search for truth mr bradlaugh was president and i held office under him till he resigned his post in february eighteen ninety nine months after i had joined the theosophical society the national secular society the nss under his judicious and far-sighted leadership became a real force in the country theologically and politically embracing large numbers of men and women who were free thinkers as well as radicals and forming a nucleus of earnest workers able to gather round them still larger numbers of others and thus to powerfully affect public opinion once a year the society met in conference and many a strong and lasting friendship between men living far apart dated from these yearly gatherings so that all over the country spread a network of comradeship between the staunch followers of our charlie these were the men and women who paid his election expenses over and over again supported him in his parliamentary struggle came up to london to swell the demonstrations in his favour and round them grew up a huge party the largest personal following of any public man since mr gladstone it was once said by an eminent man who differed from him in theology but passionately supported him in politics miners cutlers weavers spinners shoemakers operatives of every trade strong sturdy self-reliant men who loved him to the last End of chapter 8